0: With me tonight is Hanako Wakatsuki from the Minidoka
1: National Historic Site. It is an honor to have you with us tonight and I turn it over to you.
2: Okay, hi everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining um, our program tonight. Um, When I was talking to Doug, um, I kind of decided that it might be good for us to show our 30 minute park film before we go into Q&A. So our park film is called Minidoka and American Concentration Camp. And we do talk about terminology of why we chose Uh, that term um, kind of more passively in it because basically with our film, we focus on first person narration to have incarcerees tell their story. So without much further ado, I guess we'll just start the video and then we can have a great conversation afterwards.
0: The day you walked through that gate, you know you lost something.
3: There are some things in your heart that you can't forget. We were afraid. It looked like the enemy. But we're American citizens. Imagine someone saying, you need to go to jail because you're Japanese American. What did I have to do with Japan? Nothing. My family wasn't doing anything wrong, but we were paying for it. Towers, searchlights, barbed wire fences around us. If they thought we were trying to escape, they had the right to shoot us.
4: We were stripped of our civil rights. We were stripped of everything. When that happens in America, that is a concentration camp. December seventh, 1941, a day which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan.
3: My dad had just purchased a home for $1,500. December 7th is the day we were moving in. And when that news came on, my dad's face, I just saw his face just, just drop. Within hours, the FBI began raiding Japanese American homes up and down the West Coast. We lived in fear because the FBI came and picked up many of the fathers of the families. When my father was taken away, I don't think our family knew anything about where he was. This left my mother panicked as to what was going to happen to us.
4: They were shop owners, language teachers, Buddhist priests, law-abiding citizens. Why the FBI targeted them? They happened to be prominent in the community.
3: December 7th wasn't when Japanese-American prejudice started. It was decades before that. In the early 1900s, there were alien land laws and exclusion acts that kept out Japanese immigrants. And you could not apply for citizenship if you wanted to.
4: The majority of Japanese, when they start coming here to this country in 1860, the farmers, laborers, they worked hard, saved, and then invested in an operation in Japantown, starting a restaurant, a laundry, a hotel. The Japanese lived in pretty
3: much segregated areas like J-Towns. So we were fairly isolated and largely unknown. As long as we were laborers and working for them, no problem. When we became competition, that was a no-no for us.
4: Then resentment, jealousy. We were called the Yellow Peril, the newspapers, the billboards, everything was anti-Japanese. The Japanese should be under armed guard to the last
3: man and woman right now, and to hell with habeas corpus. My parents had a grocery store, and my dad put up a big sign in the front window saying, we are Americans.
4: A Jap's a Jap. Whether he's an American citizen or not, I don't want any of them. Our bank accounts were frozen. We could not leave our homes after eight o'clock p.m many people had to close down their businesses because of the curfew.
3: All Japanese should be put in concentration camps for the remainder of the war. We want to keep this a white man's country. The fate of Japanese Americans was sealed in 1942 when President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066. The west coast commander designated the entire West Coast as a military exclusion zone. And then said, anyone of Japanese ancestry would be excluded from that zone. And so you could be a newborn baby or you could be a 90-year-old invalid. Two-thirds of these Japanese Americans were citizens by birthright. With just a sweep of a pen and a couple words, you're no longer a citizen. They said aliens and non-aliens, and we thought, who in the Sam Hill is non-aliens?
0: That was us. They didn't dare say American citizens. The government
3: called it an evacuation. It wasn't an evacuation, it was a forced removal. An evacuation happens when the house is on fire and you've got to run for your safety. That's an evacuation. to be told that they can only take what they could carry. They didn't even know where they were going. It was very terrifying for my parents. My dad said, burn everything Japanese. So we start burning and burying
4: everything. My father, who had a fruit and vegetable stand, two of them, he had to close them down.
3: My parents
4: had just bought a
3: new tractor and delivery truck and the crops were in, to have all of that just wiped out, taken away from them was
4: really devastating. We got rid of our family possessions because General John DeWitt told us that we could only bring that which we could carry. And as a young boy, I couldn't carry very much. Most of the families got rid of everything. My mother and father in 1939 had purchased a General Electric radio and $100 was big money at that time. They sold it to a policeman on the beat for $5. Working 15, 20, 30 years in America and having it all taken away suddenly. Always the question is, well, why are they doing this to us? What did we do
3: to deserve this? And, of course, the answer is, our case, our race. Bainbridge Island was the first community to be rounded up and incarcerated and they had only a week to prepare pack and be ready to leave. Uh, It was difficult. It really was. I can't even find words to describe the feeling. You know, your home is your safe haven. We were herded out to the ferry and onto the train and never told us where we were going or how long we were going to be gone or anything. We all got numbers, and we became numbers. We weren't people anymore. We were numbers. There was nobody that stood up for us from outside of our community. If we dared to try to resist... They probably would have killed everybody, you know, without any hesitation. The government set up 17
4: temporary detention facilities on the West Coast. They drove us out to North Portland, and there we were in the ex-livestock yard. They're living in horse stock
3: and they fully expected my grandparents to be deported because they were resident aliens.
4: And I remember to this day, the pungent odor of manure seeping through the floor, flypaper, black with flies, barbed wire circling the building, army soldiers with fixed bayonet, and I as a nine-year-old looking at that, frightened They were saying, well,
3: we're putting you here to protect you from people who might hurt you. Well, why were the guns pointed at us instead of at those people who are trying to hurt us?
4: One day, my father was a respectable
3: businessman. He had a wife, a family, a car, a place in this society he could vote. Two weeks later, he was a prisoner in a camp surrounded by barbed wire. We got orders towards the end of August to be ready to move. And they put us on old coal trains.
4: We were ordered to pull the window shades down. We were not to see where we were going. Headed east, that's all we knew. It was a two day journey. We were covered with soot. We were then ordered to deport. We could see a sea of sagebrush, that's all we could see. And suddenly army barracks, hundreds and hundreds of army barracks. And somebody said that this is Minidoka.
3: There was a dust storm when we got off the train and my mom grabbed my hand. I remember her saying to me, Joni, this is our new home and Role. Minidoka, also called Hunt Camp, was one of 10 incarceration camps built to hold Japanese Americans from the West Coast. Minidoka was not finished yet, but we had to move in there, and they didn't have the toilets or anything. Nothing was done.
4: It was really in the middle of nowhere, and there were 44 blocks, each block consisting of 12 barracks. Each barrack was six units from eight to ten. A mess hall in the middle, a laundry room in the middle, and we would eat together, we would shower together, we would do laundry together. No privacy
3: whatsoever, any place. Including babies born in camp, the government imprisoned over 120,000 innocent people. Minidoka held over 13,000. Every summer, survivors and their families return to Minidoka for an annual pilgrimage. In our family of five, this is our bedroom and home right here. The five of us in one room here. I remember that we uh, hung up blankets to separate you know, get a little privacy between your sister and yourself and things like that. We had dust storms constantly, and we had so much dust that it would seep through the uh, walls of the barracks. When the wind blew, we would just suffocate in our quarters.
4: During the summertime, it would be boiling hot, In the wintertime, we would freeze. When it rained, we would just be in a slosh of mud. People say, oh yeah, you know, we complained about the food. We complained
3: about the lodging. That wasn't it. The, The damage was psychological. Here you were with people, all in various stages of grief. They were in anger. They were in denial. They wanted to prove their loyalty. They were grieving. The loss of their lives. Because their lives were stolen by the government. My father was so withdrawn, it really destroyed him. I didn't know about suicide at that time, but if there was a way, he may have ended his own life. There's that two Japanese word, shikadaganai, that means it cannot be helped whatever that's happening cannot be helped. And come on, bearing the unbearable. Those two words we were brought up with. I was born in an American concentration camp. I've been able to do things with my life because of the strength of my parents and their values.
4: I cannot admire more the pioneering spirit of the first generation. Amongst the hardship and the loss of freedom and being stripped of civil rights, the first generation Issei's and the older Nisei's tried to make it into a livable community.
3: Everyone took a job, anyone who could work. I mean, they hired firemen and policemen. My mother was a seamstress. I got a job as a waitress. My grandpa Zawa, he became the block captain. He recruited the people who had restaurants to become the cooks for the block. Eventually, they had schools and libraries it was like a regular community. The mess halls would be decorated beautifully with uh, crepe paper for special occasions and the young adults and adults would have their dances. Can you see a batting position? No, <laughs> yeah. I'm no hitter. <laughs> the baseball team was terrific. We used to beat the other teams like 21 to one. I didn't brag anything, but it was just all Japanese, uh, second generation, and playing against these white kids that's six feet. <laughs> it, it was a thrill. The whole idea was that we wanted to just play so that we could get out of camp.
4: After a year and a half, the American government decided we were not spies, we were not dangerous, and they gave us one day passes we were able to go beyond the barbed wire.
3: We were able to uh, leave camp during harvest months, and we worked hard for, for the Idaho farmers for Not very much, you know, pay. But uh, it was, I believe, what saved my father. In early 1943, President Roosevelt announced the formation of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. This was to be a segregated Japanese-American unit that would fight in Europe. They recognized that they had to have a process for Japanese-Americans to leave the camps. The government now wanted to enlist young Japanese-American men in the army and to start moving other incarcerates to civilian life away from the West Coast. And so they came up with the idea of uh, A loyalty questionnaire, Questions 27 and 28 were the ones that people talk about a lot. And the first one uh, dealt with, are you willing to fight on behalf of the United States against all foes and enemies? And the second one was, do you swear all allegiance to the United States and do you forswear any allegiance to the emperor of Japan? How can we disavow something we never uh, about to in the first place? Our allegiance is to America. And I think that many of them were insulted. How dare you ask me questions like that? I'm as good an American as you. Those who responded with anything but an unqualified yes, yes, were branded as disloyal and were sent to Tule Lake Segregation Center, a maximum security prison in California. It was quite an indignation for a lot of our parents to think that they wanted our boys after they had done all that to us. So there was quite a bit of controversy between the parents and the sons. My dad volunteered without any hesitation because he was an orphan. He didn't have to get approval from his parents and so he without question decided he needed to go it was really about family honor about hoping that they could prove their loyalty to this country the young man that was in our block he was put in penitentiary cuz He refused to join the army because he says no you take us out of our prison here at Minidota then i'll go and serve people will say he brought so much shame to the family and i i don't think of it that way you know courage comes in different forms for its size and length of service 442nd would become the most decorated unit in American
4: military history. All the while, their mothers and fathers were incarcerated in an American concentration camp.
3: Two of my brothers left camp to join the 442nd, and my brother Masaru was killed in action in Italy. weeks before German surrendered. These young men at Minidoka were really celebrated. They were thought of as heroes. Their names were placed on an honor roll. The loyalty questionnaire marked a turning point. Individuals and families could now apply to leave camp for school, work, or resettlement Away from the West Coast. But by December 1944, there were still almost 8,000 people incarcerated at Minidoka. The exclusion order that kept Japanese Americans off the West Coast was lifted in January
4: 1945. We were given $25 and a ticket back to Portland or wherever we came from.
3: My mother used to tell me. They took us there and we didn't want to go. And then they let us go, and we had nowhere to go. My grandfather, like many of the Isais, lost their homes, their businesses, everything. It was extremely traumatic for him.
4: People were afraid to go back out into a world where they knew that they would be discriminated against, that they would be hated in many ways. My teacher hated Japanese, release the blackboard, throw out the garbage, wipe up dust, 27 students in the class, I did all the dirty work, she hated me. We faced over racial prejudice.
3: There were bullets fired into houses in Seattle, on Bashan Island, someone burned down a Japanese farmhouse throwing rocks at me, and being called those names left an indelible
4: mark on me, a feeling of inferiority.
3: Despite widespread hostility, there were individuals and isolated communities who welcomed their Japanese American neighbors home. Yet in most places on the West Coast, racism persisted. My father was this businessman who was quite successful, who now could only become a janitor. We got married in 1955. We went to rent an apartment, and uh, the manager took one look at us and said, "Sorry, we don't rent to chaps and bank the door." That was 10 years after the war ended. My parents are the generation that went through the depression, went through the relocation, and then went through the closing the camps. So they basically started over three times. This is why a lot of the old folks, they were depressed. It was like a rape, a rape of a community. And we behaved like victims. We were in denial. We were silent. We were angry. We committed suicide. It was something that we kind of shut out of our life because it was more merciful to us to forget than to talk about it. Within the community, there was a sense that we could be taken again. So do not call attention to ourselves. Do not do bad things. We all could be taken again. My parents, they never complained about anything. I don't know what they were feeling, really. I didn't hear a work. We didn't talk about it for 40 years. Imagine. My youngest daughter, it was on the December 7th, and she says, I hate Pearl Harbor Day because everybody turns around and looks at me like I'm the enemy. I said to her, Honey, I mean, your daddy is a World War II hero. She said, I thought he fought for Japan. So that was a kind of revelation to us that we were not doing them a favor by keeping quiet. I think the Civil Rights Movement in the 60s really um, shifted things. The Sansei particularly were saying that the
2: government needed to recognize that what occurred was wrong that they wanted restitution and an apology.
3: Jimmy Carter, in his final year in office as president, started a bipartisan commission to look into this 40 years after the fact. Their findings um, from this commission was that, one, there was no military necessity, that the causes of the World War II incarceration of Japanese Americans was war hysteria, racial prejudice, and a failure of political leadership. My fellow Americans,
4: we gather here today to right a grave wrong. We must recognize that the internment of Japanese Americans was just that, a mistake. For throughout the war, Japanese Americans in the tens of thousands remained utterly loyal
3: to the United States. Ronald Reagan signed into law the Civil Liberties Act in 1988, and it was the official apology and first step toward reparations to survivors only of this tragedy three presidents signed letters of apology and we got $20,000 each if you were alive when the act was passed. When that came out, all our parents had died. They're the ones that should have got that money. But most of them all died and we benefited by it, which is not right, you know, because they're the ones that suffered for most. The money wasn't even the issue the apology was much more valuable. It really helped me uh, heal.
4: It was like we were finally part of history. Americans have to understand that freedom is very fragile. It's never to be taken for granted. I
3: remember on September 11, 2001, watching the news, and I'm hearing this is our generation's Pearl Harbor. And the first thing that went through my mind was, I hope not. People used to call me names just on the street. And uh, no one spoke up for me. No one said, hey, you you can't call that kid that kind of name. That's wrong. And so the, the whole notion was, it's okay. It's okay to call these people names. That's the situation that's been created for Muslim Americans today. We, the Japanese, are not gonna be taken again. That's done with. But someone, other group, will be taken for a different reason, to a different place that's essentially the same.
0: When you see the injustice happening, you need to stand up.
3: When you see someone being called names in public, you need to stand up.
4: The wrongs
3: of the incarceration will be perpetuated unless we do things to prevent it. Now that I've told you my story, you have a piece of that legacy to stand up. You have a piece. And should it happen again, you cannot claim ignorance. You can either say, yeah, I'm for that, or no, I'm not. And I'm hoping that reason will rule, and they will see that injustices hurt
0: us all. Thank you.
1: So there was the video, and I'll start off by saying that that was definitely a gorgeous and informing video.
2: Yeah, it was uh, you know a couple years in the making, and we were finally able to um, get that all put together last year. And fortunately, with our grand opening that we had in February, we were able to showcase it at our visitor center for that short time before we had to close down due to COVID. But um, but yeah, it was. You know, it's one of the longest uh, videos in the park service, but um, I think we do it justice to tell the story of the incarceration experience holistically and to contextualize it and specifically tell it from the first person narration. And when we couldn't do that, that's where we had our narrator, uh, George Takei, to kind of fill in those gaps.
1: I do also want to say we are now accepting questions for the Q&A. And we already have one. And the question is, were the people held in American concentration camps given any reparations or resettlement support once they were allowed to return to their homes? And how many were deported to Japan or other Asian countries?
2: Yeah, so um, I guess the support that was provided was that $25 in a one way ticket. Um, there was some Um, So the whole program of resettlement was kind of orchestrated by the government to break up the Japanese American population off the west coast. So originally people couldn't go back to the west coast that they had to move inland. And, but I think um, a majority of the Japanese American population um, ended up going back to the west coast um, because a lot of folks had trouble um, trying to, um, you know, try to fit into the communities, whether it was like Chicago or Denver. And they some folks had a really hard time. So they're like, you know what, I'd rather try to make, make our way back to what we called home to see if that's gonna be better than where they ended up uh, resettling at. Um, as with, um, I think the last question, uh, can I get that clarified? Was it um, how many people were deported? Was that the question?
3: There, um, let me
1: see. Yeah, how many were deported to Japan or other Asian countries?
2: Yeah, um, so it would have been to Japan, and I believe the number is about four thousand six hundred-ish or so um, uh, of folks who were deported um, to Japan, and it was kind of through um, a voluntary aspect in one capacity where people could just say, you know what, I, you know, I choose to go um, to go to Japan. Not everyone actually have been to Japan. Sometimes they're following their families. If their mom and dad was like, "Hey, let's try to see if we can make it better over there. Let's, you know, uh, go through this process of repatriating." Um, so there's kind of a misnomer because some people think like, "Oh, they're going back to Japan," but for most of the people, it's their first time going. Um, because if there are children. Um, There were some people who were then um, used kind of for a prisoner exchange as well, um, where they're going down to Crystal City and then um, they were used that way. Um, I'm not sure if any Japanese Americans were used in that capacity. Um, We have documented evidence um, of Japanese Latinos that the government um, actually kidnapped people from Latin America, brought them up to the United States and then used them as POW exchange, which um, actually caused a kerfuffle within uh, the rules of engagement, because most of the time when you do POW exchange is soldier for soldier. And then Imperial Japan was like, "Where are their women and children and why are they speaking Spanish? So that's when um, they had the Spanish Red Cross actually intervene. Um, and then it was determined that, oh, this is what the United States is doing to their American citizens um, and uh, Japanese citizens for the Issei who were barred by law from becoming uh, naturalized citizens. And so um, that's when Imperial Japan started to find out more about what was happening to their citizens and their descendants, which um, in oral histories, we, we've heard this a lot, where um, at one point in time, Imperial Japan was actually sending provisions to the United States uh, to help offset food um, issues with Japanese Americans at these sites. So you'll hear oral histories where people are like, wow, we got a giant to show shoyu, which is uh, soy sauce. Um, and we actually have in our collection from the Japanese Red Cross tea bags. So they're sending tea over to try to provide um, some supplement, supplements uh, for the food issues out here because we did have issues specifically at Minidoka where there wasn't good quality food um, at first and then people had to petition to actually um, have ethnically appropriate food.
1: And then how many of these people were able to start their lives back to what it was once they were um out of the camps and everything kind of started to return I don't want to say back to normal but once the camps yeah. were closed and that process was finished
2: yeah so that's a little harder to answer because um we didn't really do a whole bunch of uh, data gathering as a government on that there's there were a couple sociological studies that was done Um, after the war in the 40s, but um, it's kind of hard to just gauge to say like X amount of people, you know, were able to kind of restart their lives. I guess everyone in some capacity had to, but I think their quality of life um, was definitely not the same as pre-war. There was a lot of people who lost uh, their properties because um, they didn't make enough uh, of a wage in camp to pay their mortgages or their property taxes and a lot of property was lost during that time. Uh, Personally, my family was incarcerated at Manzanar in California and we were a fishing family. So two of our uh, family boats got repossessed and we never ever went back into the fishing industry after war. So a lot of folks, especially if they were in professional jobs, whether they're teachers or doctors, it was really hard for them to go back into those fields because of the racism that existed. So like my grandfather, he was actually drafted out of Manzanar into the military. So he was in the military intelligence service. And when he came back from war, um, he was unable to actually secure a job because no one wants to hire. And they use the derogatory terms of JAPs. And so he couldn't find a job. So he's like, you know what? I'll be my own boss. So he decided that um, he wanted to be a door-to-door salesman, but he still faced... Um, racism where people didn't want to buy from a Japanese American so he ended up um, becoming a professional wrestler by putting his pride aside because people needed an enemy to fight so there was actually this whole generation of Nisei wrestlers uh, who a lot of them were vets that had to do very much stereotypical Japanese things to you know create this um, you know this narrative of you know fighting and whatnot and that's how he was able to support his family and so um, a lot of folks it was a struggle for them because you know they not everyone was able to go back to um, their regular profession or even go back to the same city that they came out of, let alone their homes. but there were a few stories where people were able to still get their homes back because they had friends watching it, um, but that's really few and far between
1: and how are the um conditions at the other camps outside of the Minidoka camp?
2: So, um, some of them were the same, some of them were worse. Um, so Minidoka was kind of pegged as one of the more positive viewed camps. It's because the administration with the white administration, um, the re- that relationship um, between Harry L. Staff- Stafford and um, the Incarceries was actually pretty good originally when Harry L. Safford joined to become an administrator of the camp he wanted to be part of the war effort because he was too old to go into the military but then once he got here he realized hey this is kind of messed up and even in his journals he said the the worst thing about the camp was that it was operational so he tried it uh, with the best within the realm of his bureaucracy to try to be as communicative and trying to provide as much um, comfort as he could as a bureaucrat. So it isn't like he could let them go or anything like that. But, you know, eventually he established day passes where uh, incarcerates could get permission to go into Twin Falls for the day. So that became kind of a highlight for people who were getting married. So, cause a lot of people didn't want their marriage license to say hunt Idaho. So they would go into town to get married. Um, the I, I mentioned that incarcerees petition to grow ethnically appropriate vegetables. He allowed that. So we actually had a tofu factory on site. They were able to grow uh, gobo and some daikon radishes um, that are ethnically appropriate. And then the War Relocation Authority ended up becoming the largest purchaser of rice during the war um, to help uh, feed folks. So I think with that aspect, Minidoka has a more positive view compared to some of the other camps because Tule Lake ended up becoming a segregation center and five federal agencies went in to oversee that. So that became this um, huge issue where there was a lot of suppression of people's rights um, at that site. And it was um, also like pegged as like the bad camp to be at which I use air quotes because it was at first another war relocation authority site just like Minidoka but ended up converting into a maximum security prison. And then you have like Manzanar, there are riots down there. Um, There are riots at some of the other camps as well. So so Manudoka tends to have one of the more positive views in comparison.
1: And then out of all the people incarcerated at Manudoka, how many of them stayed in Twin Falls or Idaho in the greater area?
2: Yeah, so uh, there are very, um, very few people that ended up staying in the area. Um, I don't know an exact number, but I only know of one, uh, I think two or three families um, that are here that had families who are incarcerated um, at Minidoka, but I don't think that they just moved out afterwards. I think eventually over time, they ended up coming back to Twin Falls. Um, but the one thing that's also interesting is that there are Japanese Americans living in Twin Falls in Jerome, Idaho, who are not incarcerated because they're beyond the exclusion zone. So we also have a large population in Idaho Falls as well. Um, so they don't have a connection to Minidoka because they're beyond uh, that zone. So So there's a variety of stories of this. There's so many layers and I don't want to go into all these rabbit holes.
1: And then I would assume that you have documentation of every prisoner at Anadoka, is that correct?
2: Um, So we don't actually have um, all the documentation, but the government did document a lot of this. And as of right now, they're over at the National Archives. Um, And so far, you know, we were not able to get access to all of them because if people are still alive, we have to get permission because it is personal information, right? Mm -hmm. So um, over time, we'll be able to get access um, to a majority of the documents. Um, We've pulled some files here and there as we're doing some research, um, but it was highly documented on this whole program. And just a little caveat I need to just mention is that the Department of Interior was actually in charge of the War Relocation Authority, and I now work for the National Park Service which is uh, managed by the Department of Interior. So this is the government almost coming full circle, recognizing that, hey, we messed up. We need to talk about the civil liberties and civil rights issues. And that's why it was significant resources. Um, It was determined that there's enough resources here to tell this story. And that's why Minidoka, Manzanar, Tule Lake, Uli 'uli, um, have been established as national park units to tell this story.
1: And then were there any documented beatings or homicides within the camps? Specifically? So
2: so yeah, so I I know that there's probably um, all of that uh, there. Um, Unfortunately, I haven't been able to look at the records because the National Archives originally had them available, but then because of the personal information, they ended up um, kind of uh, removing them from the general circulation. So we haven't been able to actually gather all that information. I do know that I believe there was about like 300 deaths um, on site and there were suicides, there were a lot of those um, really you know, tough subjects of folks. Like we just, um, so we're doing an online pilgrimage right now um, that's been nine weeks to talk about the incarceration. So if you Google Japanese American Memorial Pilgrimages, you'll find it. But um, we had this um, elder panel session a few weekends ago where we had, I want to say it was three or four Minidoka survivors. And one of the uh, women, she just realized that one of her, I think it was her neighbor or someone she knew committed suicide um, in camp and used um, rocks to hold herself down, um, which is, you know, that was the first time that she was talking about it. So her family was really shocked to hear that. So, so I know it made an impact um, for people who heard about these. Um, these incidents. So um, I I wouldn't be surprised if there was a homicide or not. Um, So, but I just, I don't have um, documentation to back it up, but knowing, um, you know, you're basically building a city, right. And Mm -hmm. you're going to have real city issues, you know, interpersonal conflicts because most of these folks, you know, they're coming in from urban areas, they had their own homes, and then yet they're shoved into this communal lifestyle. Which is really um, unusual for them because they had privacy, you know, when they were at home. Here, you have no privacy. You had to share, to- you know, the bathrooms and the toilets. You don't have that that space for yourself, you know. And I love my family, but I don't think I could share a twenty by twenty space with them, you know. I could sometimes. With my siblings i could only like be around each other for like 40 minutes so it caused a lot of um issues psychologically too because of this new environment that people are trying to adjust to which um was unusual for a lot of the folks who were coming in
1: and then in the video they mentioned with the survey if you said no to joining the military you were sent to prison so did the official like apologies from the presidents did that acknowledge those specific people that were imprisoned for not being willing to join the military?
2: Yeah, so I don't think it was specifically noted in the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. Um, the community has done some, um, some comments on that, but to clarify, it wasn't if they said no on the questionnaire that they were incarcerated, if they said no on the questionnaire they were segregated to like the maximum security prison, but if they were drafted and did not go to induction, then they were charged with draft evasion and then incarcerated. So um, so yeah, so uh, one of my friends, uh, Takashi Hoshizaki, I serve on a board with him, he was 17 years old and he was over at Heart Mountain in Wyoming, and he actually resisted the draft and he was sent to um, to federal prison for I think a year and a half or two years. And um, when I was talking to him one time, he said that he felt really bad for his parents because knowing that the conditions in camp at Heart Mountain, you know, there's no privacy, you know, the housing was terrible, the food was terrible. Um, he said that when he was in, uh, at McNeil Island, uh, that he had better access to health care, he had privacy with his own indoor plumbing, um, he had better access to better quality food. Um, you know, for other leisurely things like a library and, you know, whatnot. So he said that, uh, you know, he felt really bad because of that. But, you know, um, it wasn't until I want to say, well, I, I don't know the year, but they did overturn a lot of those convictions. So it wasn't a felony, even though they still served their time for draft resistance because the government recognized, you know, hey, you know, they're trying to. Um, protests you know their civil liberties and civil rights because the whole point of it was like hey give me back my civil liberties and civil rights take us out of this prison and then we'll go into the military but until then you can't pick and choose and say we're American citizens to draft us but not treat us as American citizens and so um you know Ta- Takashi he ended, he is a war vet so he did fight in the Korean War because when he got drafted he's like I have my civil liberties intact It is my duty to go, so.
0: So, And I think
1: that brought up a really good point about the quality of life in Minidoka, putting it into perspective Mm
0: -hmm.
2: with,
1: you know, it's, you had a better quality of life being in an actual prison than in these camps themselves.
2: Yeah, and the other aspect is, here's another data point to compare it to. So there was a POW camp nearby in Rupert where they actually held German POWs who were caught on the front line holding arms against the United States. And they were brought out here to work in the fields. So as a POW who actually fought against United States citizens, um, they had more um, opportunities of freedom where under the Geneva Convention, they actually had better access to healthcare, uh, food and certain amenities. So they weren't behind the barbed wire. Um, A lot of them integrated within the community itself um, out in Rupert. And um, they could stay overnight if they got permission at the farmer's house. Um, but if they're in groups of 10 or more, then they're escorted by military. But other than that, you know, they had more freedom and leisure. Um, at Minidoka, they were um, surrounded by barbed wire, those military police unit watching all their movement, if they're you know, coming in or out, if they have permission to actually leave. Um, a lot of the returning vets of the Nisei vets who were incarcerated, went off to war, they're coming back for their R&R. Once they pass that imaginary line, they were just another inmate r- rather than another, um, you know, military personnel. Mm-hmm. And so those are the differences where even, you know, we have this image um, for Christmas 1944, there are kids eating hot dogs. And some people, when they see that, they're like, oh, that's cute. You know, they're trying to be American eating hot dogs, which is like, "Uh, they're actually Americans. Mm-hmm. And why are they eating hot dogs for Christmas? Then you see um, in the reports where the German POWs actually got a proper ham dinner um, with all the fixings, you know. And it's like, hey, why is there a disparity here where American citizens only got like, you know, basically hot dogs, and then POWs actually got a real Christmas meal? Um, so you could kind of then see, you know, how how that differs. And it's you know, it doesn't make us feel good, right? As whether we're the government or people just hearing these stories. But we need to recognize that we did treat people really differently, you know, and the whole point of, or at least the government at the time was trying to say there's military necessity to do this, you know, but it's like, is there really military necessity when the FBI and the Office of Naval Intelligence said that there's no need to do this? And then why are we actually treating people who fought against the United States better, you know, than... Japanese Americans, American citizens who are here and were not convicted of anything, but yet they're imprisoned. So, yeah, sorry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, and then how did the community surrounding the camps respond to the sudden Japanese American presence and that militaristic culture?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I don't know, that appeared out of nowhere.
2: Yeah, I think at first there was some hesitation because a lot of the fear and war hysteria that existed Mm-hmm. And it didn't help that Governor Chase Clark was very anti-Japanese. You know, he used a derogatory term of Japs, and he did say if they were going to come into the state of Idaho, he wants them in a concentration camp with guns pointing inward. And so, um, so I think because of all that racial hostility, and then. Um, The war hysteria that, you know, people were very concerned for their safety, not understanding that they're American citizens, because, you know, I was telling you about the POW camp nearby, a lot of people assume that these are Imperial Japanese soldiers who are brought in from the war front, not recognizing that they're civilians. Then eventually with the um, harvest and whatnot, a lot of the young white men were um, drafted into the war, so it created a labor shortage. So they're utilizing Japanese-Americans to fill in that labor shortage. And I think that that's where a lot of the community building began because they're like, oh, these people are just in a really bad situation, but they're helping us out, helping us agriculturally so we could still save the crops. <clears throat> Amalgamated Sugar actually put in an advertisement thanking the Japanese-American community for the harvest. So I think by the end of war, there was more of an openness and a, you know an appreciation um, then at the beginning of the war, where there was that hesitation and concern.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, is there any evidence of, speaking of the agricultural workers, is there any evidence of individuals that were part of that agricultural um, like movement, I guess, transitioning into later um, labor movements in U.S. history after World War II?
2: Um, yeah, so I think that there is a correlation, because um, a lot of people who came, well, so most of the folks that came uh, um, came to Minidoka was from Seattle and Portland area, so Washington and Oregon, but there are a whole group of people from Central California that were incarcerated, they went to other camps, but um, so there was a whole bunch of farmers You know who who participated in kind of the war effort through agriculture, and afterwards, and it's been documented in the um, Asian American series that was on PBS that um, that kind of helped with some of the uh, labor movement. But I don't necessarily think it was like Japanese like Japanese Americans or whatnot. A lot of it was with the Pinoy, Um, but I think it's all kind of mixed in there. Where um, I do believe that there's probably some influences there since you know, they were moved from Central California, and then um, a lot of them did return back. Sorry, there's not a clear cut answer to that one.
1: Yeah. Then, is there a cemetery at Minidoka?
2: Yeah, so there was a cemetery at Minidoka, um, and um, yeah, I think we had, I wanna say it was like 300 people or so who passed away. It was definitely under 500, um, and so, a lot of people um, tried to cremate their family members if they did pass because that is um, kind of a Buddhist ritual. So mm-hmm. there was no crematories um, in Idaho at the time, so they had to send remains down to uh, Utah for a cremation. Um, but then they did have some bur- burials over there as well. Um, but since it was Bureau reclamation land, uh, most of the remains, Um, were exhumed by the family and taken back to wherever they resettled after war, Uh, but the remaining um, remains was moved into a local cemetery.
1: And we are running short on time, but we do have a lot of (laughs) questions still, so we'll try and power through them.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Do you have any examples of communities that were accepting of the incarcerated Japanese Americans after the incarceration ended?
2: Yeah, so Bainbridge Island community was probably one of the more positive uh, reception back. And we do actually have a park film on that because Bainbridge Island is actually a unit of Minidoka. So um, so I don't know if that's available online or not. I'll have to check. But um, but yeah, that was one of the more welcoming communities to come back. There are pockets elsewhere um, that, you know, welcome family back. Uh, but it was just few and far between because I think the majority of the folks, you know, um, they faced a lot of hostilities.
1: Mm-hmm. Is Minidoka open currently during COVID?
2: Yeah, so um, the trail itself is open. So you could come in seven days a week to walk, uh, walk that. It's a 1.6 mile trail. Unfortunately, the visitor center itself is not open quite yet. We're hoping, so it's not uh, official yet, but we're hoping to open up over uh, Labor Day weekend. Um, but we're waiting for um, some issues to get resolved because basically we have a water tank issue. We don't have running water. So until we get that resolved, then we can open up the visitor center. But we're, pre- we're hopeful that it will be over Labor Day weekend. So check our website uh, to see if, if that's indeed the case.
1: And then uh, let's see. What, the video mentioned the attorney who is in prison for not joining the military as we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you know exactly what happened to that internee, specifically?
2: Maybe they're talking about Jim Akutsu? Um, Because was it the the vague comment about like, then he was sent to the prison? Yes. Oh, okay. so that's with with, uh, Fujiko. So yeah, she doesn't really name the individual, but I'm pretty sure she was referring to the Akutsus where um, he was sent to McNeil um, Prison. I think that he was incarcerated there for a year and a half or two years as well. Um, so yeah, and then, um, yeah, so it's both, it was Gene and Jim Akutsu, I think that they're brothers who are both resistors, because, um, at Minidoka, we had 40 resistors. And the one thing that was kind of weird is that I was telling you guys about Governor Chase Clark, and how he was anti-Japanese. Um, so by the time with the whole draft resistor issue came up, he was actually the Idaho Supreme Court Justice and didn't recuse himself during all the trials. And um, so that was another weird layer where he knowingly wanted the incarceration and then yet yeah, he convicted 37 of the young men uh, to prison.
1: So. And then is the road to Manadoca clearly marked with signs and is it paved all the way?
2: Yeah, um, so no, it's not clear clearly mark yet. We're trying to work with Idaho Transportation Department and it takes a while for that to get all processed. Um, But if you just like put in Google Hunt Idaho or Minidoka National Historic Site, Google will bring you out to us. Um, But make sure you're not clicking Minidoka Wildlife Refuge because that will take you about an hour away. Um, So, but yes, most of the road itself, um, it's all paved. You'll go on um, basically a highway and then a county road um, once you get to the site, you know, it's going to be all paved, um, at least to get to the visitor center parking area. We have a paved parking lot over by the guard tower. Um, but yeah, so it isn't like you're going to have to off-road. Only if you take some of the service roads, um, that's where they're just, it's more like a trail, but it's, um, you know, please stay on the road for your own safety. So.
1: And then do you mind commenting on the recent book, An Eye for Justice, edited by Susan Stacey, if you're familiar with it?
2: Yeah, so um, so I actually kind of helped tangentially on that book. So um, Robert C. Sims, um, he was a professor over at Boise State University. Um, he was actually the former uh, dean of the College of Social Science and Public Affairs. Um, but he was known as a preeminent scholar on Minidoka, and he passed away several years ago. And so I was working uh, with his wife and with Stacy, um to kind of gather, um, some of his writings and Stacy did a really good job to edit it together um, and then put put some of his information out there so all of Dr. Sim's paperwork um, and research is actually over at the Boise State University Special Collections um, and it's a great resource which I'm sure there's going to be tons of additional research based off of all his research um, but that was a way for us to kind of honor all of the work that he's done, but then also providing kind of um, some information to the general public of potential things that people could research on. So it's, it's both kind of a book to talk about Minidoka, but it's also a resource guide as well. Mm-hmm.
1: And then do you uh, mind sharing other books and films and other resource materials on Minidoka?
2: yeah so um you know we have our park film um so a couple books that i think are good to read one is by tetsuden kashima um and i'm like actually blanking on the book name um hold on like i'm i'm looking for the book right now <laughs> oh yeah personal justice denied <laughs> oh my gosh and then there's um on the national archives um we also have uh you, you could just like google it but um uh, it's called, it's a civilian of wartime internment, relocation of citizens or something like that. So it's a CWIRC, which is actually the congressional study that said this was due to war, uh, yeah, war hysteria, race prejudice, and a failure of political leadership that led to the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. So that's a government commission, a congressional commission that said we need to make an official apology Um, And they did research on that. So that's a really good resource as well as a book um, to kind of focus on it. Uh, But it's gonna be maybe a little bit more dense um, because it is very uh, research related. Um, But then there's other books like if you like um, fiction, like Hotel on the Corner or Bitter and Sweet talks about um, Minidoka a little bit um, in the love story aspects. Um, And You know, another one is uh, Looking After uh, Minidoka uh, by Neil Nakadate, and then Monica Monica Sone wrote Nisei Daughter, which is another good book. Um, So yeah, so there's a lot of resources out there. Um, Also, Densho is a really good resource as well, densho.org, where they have a lot of primary resources um, and a lot of oral histories. And then check out the Japanese American Memorial Pilgrimages as well. Uh, because we have a whole bunch of resources there, almost nine weeks of content of oral histories covering all the camps. So it isn't just Minidoka. Um, there was, you know, over 50 associated sites that incarcerated people. We have Department of Justice sites, Department of Army sites, all of these little facilities that, you know, we talk about. So.
1: And then, unfortunately, this will be our last question mm-hmm. you were able to get to tonight. But is the film that was shown here available for private screening?
2: Um, you could purchase it online through Discover Your Northwest, um, and yeah, they have it available for sale. I'm not sure the cost of it or anything. Um,